I'm Liz Sauer, and this is Ghosts in the Burbs, a podcast of ghost stories from Wellesley, Massachusetts. A warning, adults who use adult language told me these frightening tales, these ghost stories, aren't for kids. Happy month before October. To celebrate, I've relaunched the cozy Ghosts in the Burbs baseball t-shirt campaign. Order your shirt now. The campaign ends September 15th, so we'll have the t-shirts in time for the high holy season. Find the link on ghostintheburbs.com. And there are a lot of reasons to head over to ghostintheburbs.com. There you'll find a link to Steph Kelly's hilarious short film, 65 Degrees, based on the Ghosts in the Burbs short story, The Thermostat. Plus, I've got a list of suggested podcasts and books to get you into the perfect spooky mood for the season. And of course, you can also find the link to purchase tickets to the One Bad Mother show next weekend on Saturday, September 14th at the WBUR City Space in Boston, where I will join Biz and Teresa on stage as their guest. Please do come if you're in the area. I'd love to meet you after the show and hear all about your plans for the spooky season. But now... We're on to ghost story number 47, Loose Ends. A few days ago, I was in line at an excellent deli, the Linden Store, to pick up lunch. It's a classic deli setup where, in what feels like utter chaos, you wait and wonder whether or not it's your turn to order. Then, when you finally get up the courage to raise your hand after someone calls, Who's next? You end up offending three people who believe they were there before you. Then you place your order and stand and worry that they might not really use the gluten-free bread for your oldest daughter's sandwich, your social anxiety screaming at you the entire time. You've already pissed off three people, you dumbass. Just leave it be. Smile, take whatever they give you, and make a peanut butter and jelly at home if it's on the wrong bread. You fret during the 5-10 to minute wait, pay for the sandwiches, as if you haven't a care in the world, and then wonder and worry your way out to the car where you check the bag and, just as they do every single time, you find that they did indeed use gluten-free bread. So you roll your eyes at yourself and your mind goes, okay, cool, hang on and let me find something just as ridiculous for you to agonize over. Of course, in this whole scenario, by you, I mean me. Anyhow, it was during that five to ten minute wait, while I was in the throes of the will they or won't they use the right effing bread drama, when I noticed the man. He caught my attention the first time because he was facing away from the deli counter, out at the throngs of people ordering sandwiches. It struck me as odd, but I quickly returned to fretting over the bread. And then, after I'd accepted the third of the four sandwiches I'd ordered, The guy caught my attention again because I almost backed right into him. He stood his ground, never moving his gaze away from the front windows. I said a quick, oops, excuse me, but he didn't respond or even acknowledge me. So I stood there, my attention pulled between the fourth sandwich and the guy. The crowd moved, bringing us closer together. Now he was right beside me, and he definitely didn't look like he was waiting for a sandwich. He seemed absolutely oblivious to everyone around him. And then I got really scared. Oh my God, he's a ghost, I thought. I clutched the sandwiches to my chest and tried to shrink away from him, but there were too many people. I considered putting the sandwiches on the potato chip stand and leaving, but 
I'd come that far. I couldn't just jump ship. And I didn't want to have to make four peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, so I tried to ignore him, but kept sneaking glances. And then I had this overwhelming urge to find out if he was real. If my hand would feel super cold if I touched him, or if it would go straight through him like in the movies. I thought, maybe he has a message for me. Maybe Judith is right. I looked around to see if anyone was watching. I shifted the sandwiches in my arms, and then, quick as a flash, I stuck my finger out and poked him really hard in the shoulder. And it hurt because he was solid. Oh! The man exclaimed, lifting his hand to rub the spot I'd poked. Oh my god, I replied. I'm so sorry. He looked at me with concern for a brief moment before looking back up at the window and waving to a man walking through the door. He gave me another glance before moving towards his friend. And then I died. I dropped dead of embarrassment right there on the floor of the Linden store, and I'm writing this to you from beyond the veil, doomed to an eternity of shame. Seriously, though, on a scale of the most embarrassing things I've done, this one really ranks up there. Lower than having to explain to the ride operators why I forcefully shoved the guy dressed up as Jason from Friday the 13th of a carnival ride when he jumped out to scare my sisters and I. In my defense, it was really startling, and I'm a fighter, not a flighter. And a little higher on the scale than the time I got caught lying about having seen the English patient. But that was years ago, and in my defense, no one would shut up about that fucking movie. Since seeing Kyrie's ghost in Starbucks, reality and I have been on shaky ground. Judith says I need to meditate more often, imagining a golden light descending from the heavens and creating a sort of bubble of good protective energy around me. I've tried, I really have, but my imagination goes wild when I try to visualize things. When I close my eyes, I see an army of little ghost emojis attacking that bubble, testing its boundaries and finally breaking through. Biddy gave me a little metal spritzer bottle filled with holy water, but I don't trust myself to carry it around. Poking that poor man in the chest was bad enough. I can't run the risk of spraying some poor unsuspecting person in the face with holy water. It's back to school season, and I've got a lot on my mind. Once things settle down into routine, I'm sure I'll get it sorted out. But for now, most of the time, I'm just waiting and wondering when the next ghost will show up. And, you know, it's September, and I'm on the hunt for spook, but the safe kind, someone else's. Well, I found spook, but it wasn't really safe. I got a call from a man named Joe Murphy. Yep, he called my cell phone. I let it go to voicemail. I'm not a lunatic, but the message was quite friendly, and his business-like tone held an edge of desperation. I was intrigued. I returned the call praying to be sent to his voicemail so that I could leave a message instructing him to text me, but he answered. Now, I know I've gotten myself into a bit of hot water going to people's haunted houses in the past, but this guy lived right in my neighborhood, and after we connected some dots, I realized that our kids know each other. They'd spent some time playing together on a nearby elementary school playground. I knew his wife, just from those playground sessions, and he sounded incredibly relieved to know that I was somewhat in their social circle. Carrie insisted you were a normal Wellesley person, he told me on the phone. But I was worried that you might be... He trailed off, perhaps catching himself before saying what he really thought. Anyhow, Carrie is out of town with the kids right now, 
They're at my in-laws in Andover. We actually had them start school there last week. We didn't know how long this whole thing would take to sort out, and we agreed they shouldn't be in the house any longer. So she's not around, but would you feel comfortable meeting me at the house? Ugh, I know. Sounds like the perfect start to a true crime story, and I can hear a bunch of you screaming, Stay out of the forest! at me right now. For all I knew, Carrie and the kids were dead in the basement of Joe's house, their bodies arranged around a card table at an endless game of Monopoly, or shoved in the extra freezer everyone around here seems to have, or chopped up, their body parts distributed carefully into three black garbage bags, Joe waiting for a quiet moment to dump them into Mopo. So, yeah, the thought that meeting him at the house might be dangerous crossed my mind, but I did research before I agreed to meet him. And everyone I asked knew him and his wife. It was confirmed that Carrie and the kids were alive and well in Andover, Massachusetts. One of my friends said, Oh my God, wait till you see the house. Was it a stunner? I asked. Yeah, no, it's freaking enormous. I made plans to meet him at his home at 8.45 on a Tuesday morning in early September. He was adamant that he only had an hour to go over everything. He had an important meeting in Newton and simply could not be late. Fine by me. So I met Joe Murphy at his ginormous house on a crisp, sunny September morning. I hadn't seen a ghost since the last interview. I hadn't heard a ghost, and I don't even know how long, and I was hoping he'd have a really good spooky story for me, because in my mind, it was basically Halloween, and I was in the mood to get creeped out. And I was curious about something. That last name, Murphy, does it sound familiar to you? It did to me. Even though Murphys are a dime a dozen around these parts, I couldn't help but wonder if there might be a connection. Joe greeted me at a front door fit for a castle and ushered me inside to a grand and bare front hall. An incredibly elaborate chandelier hung overhead, proud and lonely-looking. Joe informed me that the light had been shipped from Spain after he and Carrie had fallen in love with it on an anniversary trip. I slipped off my sneakers and padded along behind him, past a massive formal dining room with beautiful bowed picture windows overlooking the front yard. Elegant upholstered chairs sat primly around a long, gleaming mahogany table, and a massive matching armoire stood solemnly against the far wall, empty save for one golden serving dish. I followed Joe to the back of the house and into an enormous kitchen, its marble-topped island roughly the size of my own kitchen. There were more drawers and cabinets than I could ever imagine filling, and I fought the urge to start pulling them open just to prove that they were all empty. Joe went to the floor-to-ceiling built-in refrigerator and asked, Can I get you a Perrier? Sure, thank you, I said, standing next to the island and taking in the room. It extended to one side in a wide, open family room, where a big sectional couch sat bare. The far wall was a long line of French doors leading to the brick patio. Aside from a very large flat-screen television above the fireplace, there was nothing else on the walls. No evidence whatsoever that a family lived there, let alone a family with children. Do you mind if we sit outside? Joe asked, handing me a fancy bubbly water. I don't know if it's a great idea to talk in here. I'd like the opportunity to point out the locations we've seen him in the house. It seems as though that's what the professionals do on the ghost hunting shows, right? Totally, I said, smiling, wondering if I'd finally found someone who loved ghost hunting reality television as much as I did. 
I streamed a few episodes when I was trying to determine where to look for help. Absolute trash television, but it did validate the fact that other people have problems like ours. With some difficulty, I held back my TED Talk about the validity, importance, and superiority of those so-called trash television shows, and listened as he went on. I don't want to talk about him in the house, though. When we do, it seems to call him out. Why don't I show you where we've seen him, and then we'll sit on the patio to game plan. Okay, sure, I said. Not at all sure. The house just felt like a big, brand new, empty house to me. I didn't get any spooky vibes, save for the fact that there is zero sign of the fact that a family of five lived there. Joe walked swiftly back the way we'd entered the kitchen. I began to follow him, then almost plowed right into his back when he stopped abruptly and turned to say, Again, I'll just point out the hot spots. Let's save the questions until we get outside, all right? Hackles beginning to raise, I nodded my head in agreement. I followed Joe around the sparse home. Every once in a while, he'd stop and say something like, Over here, he poked his head around the corner at text in brackets, child's name omitted, end brackets, and beckoned her to follow him. Or, in that corner there, Carrie saw him crouched. He had his head resting on his knees. I saw his leg move under that bed, like he was trying to pull it under before I saw him. And, text in brackets, child's name omitted, end brackets, said he was sitting at their play table over there by the window, she described his shirt down to the muddy work boots. It was exactly the man Carrie and I had seen. There's no way she could have known that. Spooky, right? The second floor held a totally different vibe from the first. Up there, I saw evidence of family life, but just. I didn't see a thing on the walls, not a taped crayon drawing, not a scenic watercolor over the guest bed. Just pristine white walls everywhere. But if the second floor was unnerving, it was the basement that really got me. We descended in silence due to the plush cream wall-to-wall carpeting. The space was gorgeous. Built-in bookshelves and drawers would have been ideal for kids' toys and books had there been any to store. We walked past rather formal sitting area, arranged in front of a fireplace, and turned a corner. The room opened... To the left sat a colorful playmat, train table, and a small art easel, besides one of those plastic log cabins for toddlers usually see in backyards. And to the right? Guys, there was a legit, glassed-in, fully-loaded gym. It even had a sauna and one of those stair-stepper machines you see at real gyms. Gesturing to the two mirrored walls of the gym area, Joe said, I was working out last night, and you see that playhouse thing? We both looked at the small log cabin. He was in there, watching me. I sucked air through my teeth and stepped back. Joe shoved his hands in his pockets. I gotta hire someone to drag it out of here for me. I was about to suggest that we just drag the damn thing out of there right there and then, when he continued... I came down here this morning intending to break it down and haul it out of here, but he was sitting in one of those chairs when I turned the corner. Can we go back upstairs now? I asked. I'd hoped to show you the storage room, too. I have a really good imagination, I said, forcing a nervous laugh. 
He looked at what must have been the storage room door, set beside the gym. All right, then, let's go up. And now a word from the sponsor of today's episode, Care Of. Care Of is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. Give yourself support this season with a boost, whether you're looking for energy, better sleep, to manage stress, or something else to help you feel your healthiest. It can be really hard to know what vitamins or supplements you should be taking, but Care Of makes it easy to find out what you specifically need to be your healthiest. Care of makes sure what you're putting in your body comes from the best sources backed by honest guidance and transparency, and it's all available to you on their website. And depending on your personalized care of plan, you'll get daily vitamin packs and or protein powder sent right to your door. It's so cute and customized. The packets even say your name on them. I eat about 95% plant-based, and supplements help me to cover all my bases. So I was excited to see that Care-of had vegan and vegetarian supplement options available to match my own dietary needs. In the past, I've felt overwhelmed and not just a touch confused trying to navigate the vitamin and supplement aisle. All those little brown and white bottles staring back at me, judging, whispering to one another about how dull my hair looks. Care-of rescued me from those snarky bottles. Their fun online quiz asked me about my diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices, and it took only five minutes to find out my own personal scientifically-backed vitamin and supplement recommendations. When you take the quiz, you answer easy questions like, how much sleep are you getting? Are you looking for more energy? Do you need something to support weight management or healthy hair, skin, and nails? It gets really personalized. Once my care of quiz was complete, I was presented with a list of vitamins and supplements, along with an explanation about why they were suggested to me, and detailed descriptions for each one. And I wasn't married to those suggestions. I could add or remove supplements to my cart as I saw fit. For instance, I already have B vitamins at home, so I took them out of my cart and added some of their individually wrapped on-the-go protein powders. Another cool factor? The individually wrapped vitamin packets are now made from compostable plant-based film that meet the same safety standards, so your vitamins are kept fresh while now being better for the environment. Your personalized care of subscription box gets sent right to your door every month with personalized daily packs, great for a busy on-the-go lifestyle. Now, here's the deal for Ghosts and the Burbs listeners. For 25% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter the promo code GITB for Ghosts in the Burbs at checkout. Again, for 25% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter the promo code GITB at checkout. That's takecareof.com, promo code GITB. Now, back to the interview. We sat outside at a ridiculously nice outdoor table. Joe retrieved his phone from his back pocket and began scrolling through text messages. He began to type a response while saying, So, uh, what else do you need to know? I remained silent for a minute, waiting for him to turn his attention back to the conversation. When he finally looked up from his phone, he wore an expression that clearly said, Well, what are you waiting for? Hey, 
Before you tell me about the haunting, by any chance, do you have any relation to Tom Murphy? Huh, yeah, you got me. He's my cousin. That's who told me about you. Oh, wow. You should have said something. Why didn't you? I asked, genuinely perplexed. I didn't know about everything that went down with Tom until I let on about what had been happening in this house. It sounds like it was a real mess, and I didn't want you to be put off by my connection to him. I shook my head adamantly. Not at all. Chris and I absolutely love Tom. We were just so relieved that everything worked out. How is he? I haven't talked to him or Jenny in ages. Oh, and how are the girls? Meg sat for us a couple times, but she must be away at school now. They're all great, Joe said, his face softening. I had no idea that any of that had gone down, you know. That night, after your husband helped them get rid of that thing, it was my wife's surprise 35th birthday party. Tom just told me that, but that night I never would have known they'd had any trouble. Then again, I didn't know much at that party. It's the worst blackout I'd had since college. He laughed. Anyway... Our family owes you a great deal of thanks for speaking up when you did. You and your husband really showed up when Tom needed it. I waved away his comment. Everything would have worked out whether I'd been there or not, I said, but that was probably untrue. I think Tom was well on his way to being completely possessed and may have hurt someone had he not opened up and told me the story of those haunted bunk beds. I'm embarrassed and a little guilty we've lost touch. I admitted. No need for that. Tom only has great things to say about you and your husband. Trust me, I got an earful when we talked about our situation. I smiled. Well, please say hello for me next time you see him. Memories flooded my mind. That day, a little over three years ago, when I'd call Chris in a panic worried that Tom was about to use the red-handled paint scraper in his back pocket to do something unthinkable... Chris, as is so often the case, was the one to calm the situation down. Do not call the police. Liz, just don't, he'd said. I'll call Tom right now. I'm leaving work. He'd asked Tom to meet him at the Whole Foods, of all places. Chris said the more crowded the better, just in case I was right and Tom was under the influence of something out of his control. Cat and I waited in the car out in the parking lot. Me panicking. Cat sleeping. Tom handed over the paint scraper, not even realizing he'd had it in his back pocket, if you can believe it. He had no memory of putting it there. Hadn't felt it poking into his bum as he rode in the car or sat with me in Starbucks. Chris told me later that Tom seemed genuinely frightened. They called his brother Pete, and the three of them went out on Pete's boat that very afternoon, despite my angry protest that Chris had no business going anywhere with a man who didn't realize he'd had a weapon in his back pocket. What else was he carrying around that he didn't know about? They dumped the bunk bed in a never-to-be-named body of water right here in Wellesley. Crisis averted. And years later, there I sat in front of Tom's cousin, wondering if perhaps a bent towards the paranormal ran in their family. Tom reassured me that you would keep my family anonymous if I agreed to be a part of your little research project. I'll make up a name for you, or a reader will offer their name as an alias, I replied, evenly. Joe, who'd been peeking at his phone, looked up. People do that? Yes, I said simply. 
Why? I let out a genuine laugh at his confusion. I don't know. I guess it's a way for people to be a part of the story of this strange little town. He stared at me, and I could see his mind working overtime, calculations tailing behind his eyes. How many people read your blog? Oh, I don't know, I said vaguely. A few. Not everyone likes spooky stuff, right? Sure. Sure, but you could monetize. People do that, don't they? My wife spends God knows how much time on fashion blogs or whatever. They've got ads. I smiled. I mean, I'm just a private equity guy. I'm not an expert, but you must spend a lot of time on this. A few hours to interview people, time to transcribe that recording. He pointed to the recorder on the table. If you need to talk to someone who knows about that stuff, I'm sure I could find someone knowledgeable. Maybe you could dig up a little fun money, if nothing else. You should look into it. I watched him as he again looked down at his phone and began scrolling. Go ahead and tell me about your ghost, I said finally, and we'll see if I can dig up one of my contacts to help you. He looked at me, perhaps confused that I had ignored his opinion of my blog. I got the sense he wasn't used to people ignoring his opinions. Yeah, so I just wanted to move, leave the house and that guy to someone else to deal with. I only got half my wish. Carrie agreed to sell the house, but not until we make sure it's safe for another family to move in. So here we are. Oh, I thought. So that's why this place is so barren. We've got an offer accepted on new construction over on Bristol. We close October 15th, so I'm under the gun. I gotta put this one on the market, but Carrie won't come home, not to this house and not to the new one, unless I can guarantee that guy is gone. In the bright daylight, I could see just how worn out the guy looked. Dark circles under his eyes, along with a sort of puffiness that hinted at a hangover. It must be really spooky staying here alone. How do you sleep at night? Like a log. Too soundly, actually. He forced a laugh. I've been sleepwalking. Oh, man. A lot? His eyes darted to the trees at the edge of the yard. Uh, yeah, most nights. That's not good, especially with a man lurking around your home. The flannel man. What? The flannel man. That's what the kids call him. Flannel shirt man. Ugh, shivers, I whispered. Yeah, so what are we going to do about it? What do you suggest? Are you scared of this thing? I mean, does it bother you that there's a flannel man haunting your home? Well, yeah, I mean, we got to sell the place, and I can't do that until we get rid of him. Joe, from the little bit you've told me, you couldn't pay me to stay here alone. In fact, I don't even want to go back inside your house. And you're telling me that you're sleeping like a log at night? I watched his eyes stray to the cell phone screen. I knew he was itching to pick the thing up. Why do I get the feeling you're holding something back, or that there's something else that you're not telling me? He huffed and crossed his arms over his chest. This isn't my area of expertise, he said, frustrated. I just want to wash my hands of this place. My luck has turned to shit since we moved here. Really? Yeah, things at work have just gotten so... He let out a growl of frustration. I can't make it two seconds without bumping into a fucking moron. And then this house is one headache after another. Not just the haunting. The place makes me want to jump out of my skin. 
I considered what he'd said before asking, How long have you lived here? A little over three years. We actually moved in the weekend before Carrie's surprise birthday party. She says this house was the shittiest birthday present she ever got. It's new construction though, right? And it still had problems? Yeah, plenty. But more than that, we bought all new furniture when we moved in, but I made Carrie return it all. I couldn't stand it. Couldn't stand the furniture? Yeah, it was just too much. I couldn't sleep with all that shit in here. The furniture? Yeah, the furniture. What was your old house like? The one before you moved to this one? I asked. Mm, typical starter. Three bedroom, 1940s colonial, over on hundreds. Did you mind furnishing that house? No, that place was fine. Carrie did a good job sprucing it up. We sold it 50 over asking. Made about 95 on it after the broker fee. Huh. So even though this house is bigger, it made you feel what? Trapped, Joe said simply. You know, you got to be a little jealous of the guy, whoever he is or was. The flannel man? How so? Well, the plaid shirt, axe, all that. He must have been an outdoorsman. Axe? You didn't say anything about an axe? Yeah, I did. I shook my head. Who do you think sees the flannel man the most? You? Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that. A terrible idea began to grow in my mind. Do you ever hear anything outside? Back there? I asked, gesturing to the band of trees separating their yard from the house behind it. You mean besides that jackass chopping trees down in his backyard at all hours of the night? I've complained to the damn neighborhood association, but the asshole denies it. Says I'm hearing things. Tried to get it on video, but the trees are too thick back there and I can't get a bead on him. He ran a hand through his thick salt and pepper hair. We just gotta sell this place and start fresh. I honestly don't give a shit if it's safe for the next family. I need a break. I feel like I'm this close to just snapping. Slowly, I said, Joe, I don't think moving to a new house is going to help. What are you saying? No, the new house will be great. We just need a clean fucking slate, he said, his eyes flashing with anger. I don't think it's the house that's the problem. Joe went very still, and then in the blink of an eye, he slammed his fist down on the metal tabletop, causing me to jump back, pushing my chair away. I snatched my recorder and held it tight. The new house will be great, he said in a low voice. You'll see. I stood up and began backing to the edge of the yard. You're right, I said. I think it's the house. You know, you can get a minister in and have him give it a simple blessing. That should put Carrie's mind at ease. Joe tilted his head down, absently rubbing his hand. A minister, he said in a gravelly voice. All right, then. I know you have a meeting to catch, and my friend Biddy is expecting me at Cafe Nero, so I was at the edge of the house. I could make it to the front yard in no time if I had to run. It flashed through my mind that attack victims often scream their heads off and still no one comes to investigate or help. Joe stood. I didn't hesitate. I ran to the front yard, jumped into my car, and peeled out of the driveway. I called Chris and then searched my phone for an old number. Tom, I said, 
when he answered the phone with a cheerful hello. I'm so sorry, but it's not over. I think it jumped. I'd like to offer a million thanks to Kelsey Driscoll, Angela Ekstrand, Connie Hill, Martina Swires, Katie Huff, MJ, Kelly Molnar, and Winter Hobach for their generous support on Patreon. Without it, this podcast wouldn't exist. If you haven't yet, head over to check out Ghosts in the Burbs on Patreon, where each patron tier carries with it a small token of my thanks. The following patrons... Danny and David Grinstead chose the $10 per month tier so that I might create a spooky story just for them. Danny rechecked the recording equipment. The call was scheduled for 11 p.m. and he wanted to be sure things were perfect. In the past, interviewing total strangers had never really panned out. Their ghost stories spooky on the surface, but once they dug in, they only proved to be more of the And then we took a picture and you could totally see this like orb floating over her head variety. But this man's story, frankly, whether it was true or not, didn't even matter. It was terrifying. And it's exactly what Danny had set out to find when he started Haunted Friends, the podcast. He wanted truly frightening stories from real people because he believed that truly frightening things happened and he wanted to record them and share them with the world. And this guy had one of the most frightening stories he'd ever heard. The listeners were going to love it. He checked the cords, adjusted the microphone in front of him, and waited. At 11.01, the familiar boop-boop-boop of Skype filled the small recording studio in his basement. Hi, is this David Grinstead? Uh, yeah. Danny? Yeah, so glad this time worked for you. Thanks for calling in. Sure, yeah, she's usually resting this time of night, so I figured it was safe. Uh, right. So why don't we get right into it? Make sure we talk before she uh, wakes up. All right. Okay. So you mentioned in your email that her name is Kame, right? When did you first know she was with you? Um, she's always been here. At least that's what she says. And it's true. I can't remember a time when she wasn't with me. Mm Mm-hmm. What's your earliest memory of her? Uh... At the swing in my backyard, she used to push me for hours. Wow, right. So it sounds like you have at least some good memories of her then. Yeah, I guess I do, actually. But mostly I just remember having to be careful. My whole life sort of has to revolve around her, but I work from home, which I found to be the safest thing. What do you do for work? I'm a copy editor, It's pretty solitary, but I do have to interact with authors sometimes. I have to answer questions and clarify my edits occasionally, and as long as I keep it professional, I can avoid the problems that happened in the past. Until recently, anyway. Uh, I do all my shopping online. You can get just about anything delivered now, so I really don't come into contact with many people. His tone had grown defensive. Is it contact with people that's the problem? Danny prompted. Well, yeah, it's just that she gets sort of jealous, you know. Have you ever told anyone about her? 
There was a long pause. Danny worried he'd lost the connection, but David continued, I told the school psychiatrist in sixth grade. I was worried about this girl who sat next to me. She was really shy, and I think she thought I didn't talk to anyone because I was shy too, so she wouldn't stop trying to be my friend. I didn't want her to get hurt. I never wanted anyone to get hurt. Of course not, Danny said soothingly. Did something happen to that little girl? No, the school psychiatrist, David replied. What happened to him? Another long pause. Then, I don't want to talk about it, okay? I was just trying to protect the little girl in my class. I wouldn't have told him anything if I'd known I wasn't supposed to. Was that the last person you told about came? Yeah. A notification dinged on Danny's screen. He'd received an email. Distracted, he clicked on the message and asked, So why have you decided to start talking about her now? The message had come through his podcast website from an unknown email address. The subject line read, Soon. Well, I'm worried, David said, though Danny was only half paying attention. The body of the email, just two words. Stop now. Another notification dinged. He closed the email and saw another had come in, this one titled, Sooner. Ding. Are you there? David asked, worry in his voice. Uh, yes, sorry. I think someone is screwing around on my website. So you said something happened that made you concerned. I think she's figured out how to get around me. Danny quickly read the message before asking, Why do you think that? But he was only half listening to David's response because this new email read, I'm warning you. David said, I've done my best, but I don't think it's enough anymore. Ah, uh, Danny muttered, as another message dinged its way into his inbox. What exactly have you done to keep a lid on her? Just like I said, I limit my interaction with people. In the past, it's been enough, but last week, he trailed off. Danny opened an email titled, I Dare You. Its message continued, To Keep Going. What happened last week? he asked David. I've been working on this manuscript for a horror author, and while I know Kame reads everything I edit, she's paranoid that I'm somehow sending hidden messages or getting them from other people. And the problem is, this manuscript, I think it gave her ideas. What was the manuscript about? It was a rather poorly written novella about a possessed computer, but it was heavy with technical detail, and I think that's where she got the inspiration. I turned in the edits and went back and forth about them with the author over a few emails because I had a lot of questions. I'm not familiar with all the technological terms used, and I wanted to be sure I was editing thoroughly. I swear it was professional. I wasn't trying to build any sort of a relationship with a woman. But then she just stopped responding to my emails. We were close to the end of the project, and I was afraid she was going to stiff me on the bill. I sent her three messages over the course of a week. Only the last one got a response. It was from her husband. It was brief. He said he'd be sure that I'd receive payment, but that he was sorry to tell me that she'd died. Freak accident. Danny stared at his computer screen. No way this man's story could be real. He must be the one sending the emails and trying to freak him out. Danny had to hand it to him, though. He was doing a damn good job. 
The most recent message had been the longest. Too late. Time's up. See you soon. He'd just finished reading it. Why you? He asked David, unable to hide the challenge from his voice. Surprised he hadn't responded to the story about the dead author, David replied, I don't know. She's just always been here. I've done everything I could to isolate myself, but it's not like I can just not work. I don't have family left to ask for help. She, she took care of them years ago. There was a noise outside the sound booth. Danny froze. Uh, can you hang on a minute? I need to check something. He stood and put his hand on the plywood door of the small sound-buffering box he'd built for himself in his basement. He listened, leaning forward. He heard someone shuffling across the basement floor. David sat quietly listening, too, waiting to see whether his suspicion was true. Danny slowly turned the doorknob, then yanked the door open, hoping to catch the intruder by surprise. The shadow demon was upon him before he even knew what was happening. David listened to a brief scuffle, a muffled cry, and a thump that sounded remarkably like a body hitting a concrete floor. Slowly, he took off his headphones and ended the Skype call. At least now he knew for sure. Kame was loose. Everyone he'd ever known was in danger. This has been Ghosts in the Burbs. Good night. Sleep tight, and don't forget your nightlight.